Hello again, dear listener. Welcome to this special episode of Conflicted, a podcast from Message Heard. I'm Thomas Small, and I'm here again with my friend and co-host, Eamon Dean. Hello, Eamon. Hi, Thomas. How are you? Ah, we are we definitely all of us still alive. Oh, that's good. And these days you can't <laughs> take that for granted. Not even, you know, usually you can't take it for granted, but even now I can't take it for granted because death stalks the land. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we're trying uh, something a little different today. We've decided to release a bonus episode where Eamon and I are going to be answering some of your questions. Over the past two seasons of our show, we've had so many smart, thoughtful questions sent to us on our Facebook group, via Twitter, and in our audience survey, and we have been keeping notes. These questions and comments help us figure out what you want to hear and what we should do next, so do keep sending them in. Today, we'll be answering some of your questions. We'll be digging deeper into past discussions, as well as touching on topics we've yet to cover in the podcast. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says there are only a dozen years left for global warming to be kept to a maximum of one and a half degrees Celsius. We're seeing the end of capitalism. The end of capitalism as we know it, and I say good riddance. What is at stake is more in one small country than you will do. This episode is coming to you direct from the depths of coronavirus and a whole lot of other madness. And in fact, you know, Eamon, I don't know what you think. I think that our season two uh, of Conflicted, the last few episodes of which came out in March, just as the COVID-19 crisis was exploding in the Western world. And when I think back onto that season, I think, oh my goodness, we were we were rather prophetic. There we were talking about the decline of of the new world order and the decline of of wet of the West and the decline of capitalism, the decline of you know an environmental crisis getting out of control. And here we are. We're all stuck in our homes. The 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 stock market. Well, it's currently on a massive rebound, but who knows how long that will last. The stock market certainly collapsed. Oil prices collapsed in a historic way. Unemployment is higher than it's been since the 1930s. We were, are we prophets? All this talk about prophecy, Eamon, are we actually prophets? <laughs> uh, I would say that, you know, the world is going through a profound change. I'm not saying basically that the world economy will uh, collapse or the world economy will uh, thrive. I will say that there will be a significant realignment. The digital economy is going to boom. Yeah, the digital coming. Any any work you can do without having to come face to face with another human being. Exactly. And so the digital economy, whether in entertainment, in production, uh, or in retail, is going to be the norm. So what was disruptor now is the reality. Luckily, podcast uh, creation is ultimately a digital a digital uh, part of the economy. Uh, so Indeed. I can see your lovely face, but it's uh, <laughs> mediated via my computer screen, uh, unlike normal. So uh, listeners, just in, you know, we are obviously recording this from our homes deep in lockdown. So if the uh, if the audio quality isn't quite as high as, as you're used to from uh, from conflicted, please forgive us in advance. We'll, we are doing our best. How are you coping under lockdown, Eamon? Ah, fine. I mean, I'm coping really well. Where I am is really good. Uh, even even with your two children or your two monsters, as you call them? 
Oh yeah, especially with the two children. <laughs> uh, tyrants, I would say. <laughs> I'm also, I must say, you know, it's a very privileged position to be in, I admit it, but I have I have been enjoying lockdown quite a bit. Um, and it's made me realize that I think those uh, those years I spent in those monasteries in Greece uh, were good training, but this is also this is also reminding me of of why I I went in the first place. I I realize I quite like solitude. I like the time to uh, contemplate and read and, <laughs> and think. Yeah, and I think you like your own company. Uh, if I, I liked, didn't if think I, I did you? actually, I didn't think I did like my own company. It's one of the it's one of the great revelations of lockdown that I I don't hate myself nearly as much as I thought I did. <laughs> Let's get into it then. First up, we're going to keep it topical with a question about how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting the Middle East. This question is from Lucy, a member of our Facebook discussion group. My question is, what is the impact of the current COVID-19 crisis on the countries of the Middle East, um, socially, politically, economically? Are they locking down in the same way that we are? What are the terrorists doing during all this? Do you think there's going to be an impact on the conflicts? And how do you see things moving forward in the Middle East as a result of this? Well, thank you, Lucy. That's a big question, a lot of sub-questions within that big question. Eamon, what do you think? How, um, how is COVID-19 having an impact on the Middle East? I mean, I, early on in the crisis, what was at the forefront on the newspapers was the Iranian dimension of COVID-19. Iran was hit very badly by this virus. Well, Iran was the hub, the regional hub uh, for COVID-19. Uh, almost all the cases that has been reported in Turkey, uh, in Saudi Arabia, uh, in Kuwait, in the United Arab Emirates, in Lebanon, in Iraq, all of them, and Bahrain, all of them, without single exception. I mean, at the beginning, we're talking, you know, the you know the spreaders, the spreading, you know, um, factor. All of them came from Iran. And and why is that? You no, know, what why should it have uh, first gone from China, from Wuhan province in China to Iran? What's the link there? Because um, you know, fate would have it uh, that Wuhan province. Uh, is linked economically very heavily with uh, Iran. And the flights kept going, you know, basically flights kept flying between Wuhan and Iran and the Iranian government, uh, for whatever reason, did not stop them. And when in the first 19 days of the uh, pandemic spreading to Iran, uh, the Iranian government thought it was the flu, whether thought or not, and, you know, that's not, uh, you know, the question, but they thought it was the flu, or at least that's what they said to their people. Oh, no, don't worry, it's just a flu. But as soon as uh, it became apparent, especially in the Iranian holy city of Qum, where people congregate so closely together in huge numbers, kissing and touching shrines, uh, which, of course, basically is the surest possible way of spreading this disease, um, it became very apparent uh, to the Iranian government that this is COVID-19. The government also allowed Persian New Year festivities to go ahead, I think, if that's if I'm not mistaken, which are all, which are big family events and lots of people, you know, hugging and kissing. <laughs> exactly. And so uh, that led to Iran having nearly 200,000 cases and nearly 9,000 dead. And uh, these numbers are, you know, thought to be deflated um, and that many deaths that happened outside of hospitals are not recorded. 9,000 dead is the figure from deaths in hospitals, not deaths at home. And the fact that 
the Iranian health uh, service is you know, not anywhere near coping and many people are being treated and dying at homes, this figure could be three, four times worse. But I mean, a lot of governments made the similar mistake early on thinking it was just a flu. I mean, Donald Trump famously called it a flu. Boris Johnson famously, you know, shook hands with people in, 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 uh, in hospital pretending that there was nothing to be afraid of. A lot of governments um, made similar mistakes. Are you saying that the Iranian government are you saying it was more than just incompetence, like like in Trump's case, like in Boris Johnson's case, or are are you thinking that there's maybe something more sinister uh, informing the Iranian response? I don't think it was necessarily sinister. I think they just did not want to face the reality that their country is facing an epidemic, especially with the fact that the Iranian economy is on its knees already because of the sanctions by the U.S. and other countries. Um, so. You know, and religious tourism and the New Year's tourism was extremely important for the Iranian economy. Uh, if you uh, think about what what was going through their minds at that time, it's like if we announce that we have COVID-19, you know, we might as well close shop altogether because then they have to go into lockdown. The Iranian economy cannot afford it. Um, but you know, 19 days of resistance from certain officials who basically just insisted it's a flu, it's a flu, it's a flu. But then it became absolutely clear because people were, you know, falling like leaves on the streets, uh, especially in Qum and places in Tehran and uh, in Mashhad in the uh, far east of the country. What about beyond Iran, though? Let's widen it out to encompass the whole Middle East. I mean, for example, you know, your your uh, stock and trade is terrorism. How is COVID-19 uh, having an impact on the terrorist networks of the Middle East? What is the intelligence community thinking about COVID and its impact on the Middle East? Well, it is having a uh, a sort of a calming down effect on uh, active acts of terrorism uh, for a very good reason, because there is a lockdown and curfew in many, many parts of the Middle East. Like Saudi Arabia, there's a curfew. What about the bigger kind of Egypt, Iraq? Everywhere, basically, there are curfews in place. Uh, so especially at night, um, where you don't need to go out, um, there are no shops open, no pharmacies open, only the hospital. So unless if you are on your way to a hospital, um, you know, your car will be stopped, you will be searched, you will be fined. So this restriction on movement is what terrorists don't like whatsoever, uh, because it is a not a random it is a general restriction on movement. So if they are out, they will be found out. And geopolitically, um, geopolitical reverberations from uh, from COVID-19 in the region, what are they like? Iraq, uh, very kind of historically almost, had to come cap in hand to Saudi Arabia recently for a, for an emergency loan. I mean, that, that, that strikes me as, as possibly a geopolitical shift. Explain that. The geopolitical shift that really hurt all the countries of the uh, Middle East with a single exception, especially Iran, Saudi Arabia, um, the UAE, Kuwait, was, and Iraq in particular, was the collapse uh, in the oil prices. Uh, at some point we saw even, uh, especially in the US and uh, Canada, there was uh, what they call negative uh, oil prices. In other words, I will pay you to take the oil out of my hand. Uh, why is that? Because there is no 
storage place uh, open anymore. Yeah, all the storage facilities were basically full of oil. And, and, and the thing people don't understand is that you can't just turn an oil well on and off. We think of it maybe like you can just turn it off. Once an oil well is pumping, you've got to keep it pumping. You, you, you threaten to destroy the oil well if you turn it off. So as they saw their, their uh, storage facilities fill up with petrol and no one was buying, people began to panic. They said, well, we will pay you to get the oil that we've already taken out of the ground. We'll pay you to get it off of our hands so that we'll have room to put the new oil in the storage facilities. Exactly. And already before that, the Saudis and the Russians were locked in a price war uh, where Saudi Arabia wanted to bankrupt Iran uh, by dropping the oil prices to historical lows. So even uh, Iran and its allies will not be able to export uh, you know, enough to keep their countries running. You know, so then came COVID-19 and basically you know, made the crisis even worse. Uh, the Saudis were pumping almost 12 million barrels per day, which is the largest they ever did uh, before the crisis. So when and that's the crisis approaching, hit, that's, that's approaching their maximum. I mean, they can't really, yeah, their maximum is 12.3, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 12.3 million barrels per day. So when, when they approach the maximum before the crisis, so of course when the crisis hit and suddenly people are not driving, uh, people in a fly, fly, you know, planes are not flying, um, yachts are not sailing. Economic demand globally goes down. That means that shipping goes down. Everything goes down. <laughs> exactly. So suddenly, like, no one is buying. Um, and that's why the Saudis now are almost at 6 million. You know, they have their, um, you know, their production in order to pump some life into the oil price. Now, the oil prices are rising above 40, but at some point, there was few days where the prices were uh, to for some indexes uh, in the negative. In other words, you pay people to take your oil. I mean, those who did have storage facilities and were willing to buy and take the money made uh, a killing. Let's China, I think a lot. I believe China really China bought. Up. China mm. bought. And, and, and the reason why the prices recovered very quickly after that is because China just decided, let's buy now and fill up our strategic reserves. Oh, China! There, I want China will probably come out on top in the end. But I want to go back to the the militants of the Middle East, the militants, because you told me COVID has helped the intelligence services of the Middle East to track Iranian trained militants. You told me about this. Oh, let's talk about this. I mean, listener, this is very interesting. This is stuff. This is the stuff out of John le Carre novels. You know, so much so that when Eamon told me, I thought, come on, can this actually be true? You're making this up. You're a Saudi <laughs> shill. You hate the Iranians. This can't be true. Do you know that, uh, you know, in my DNA analysis, it says I'm 31% Persian? Oh, well, I think probably, you know, we're all 31% Persian when it comes down to it, since they've been around <laughs> a very long time. Anyway, what's what about this? How has COVID-19 exposed Iranian militancy? If you think about it, the uh, you know there were many citizens of the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Kuwait, uh, living in Iran without informing their countries, um, and of course the pretext was that they were students in religious seminaries. Of course, that is uh, yet to be uh, determined if it's true or not. So they, of course, panicked when. Uh, the places where they were became infected heavily with COVID-19 and they wanted to go back home because the Iranian health system is collapsing, you know, already as it is treating Iranian citizens. What about them? So the Iranians encouraged them basically just board a plane and go back home and get treatment there. 
do not clog our system. How very loyal of the Iranians, huh? So they, they were put in planes and they were sent back. So this is when the Saudis, the Kuwaitis, the Bahrainis, the Emiratis, all of them immediately accused Iran of attempting to spread the COVID-19 to them because they did not inform them that there are people with symptoms on the planes. I see. So they were thinking it was like biological warfare or something. Almost. So when they landed, the Saudis in particular came up with a very ingenious way to determine what these people were doing in Iran, especially that their passports do not show any entry or exit from Iran. Ah, so so already they're entering Iran under false pretexts. They're, 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 they're not, they're, exactly. They don't want the, the authorities to know they're going there. Yeah. So what happened is when the Saudis were going to their homes, you know, with the medical teams uh, to test them for COVID-19, they were all already doing another kind of test. Uh, this test uh, is uh, called GSR uh, for those in forensics. Uh, they know that this means gunshot residue. So gunshot residue means that if you have fired you know, uh, AK-47s or pistols or any kind of weapon, basically, um, in the past uh, several weeks, there will be, you know, residue on your hands. And there was a significant percentage in the 80s percent of those tested, even among females, uh, who, uh, coming back from Iran, tested positive for gunshot residue. You know, they were telling them, oh, we will just swap your hands, you know, just to see if, for any, you know, viral or bacterial infection in your skin. But in reality, they were looking at whether they shot weapons. And so the idea is, did, were, they, were, were you there for training? Were you there in a military training camp in Iran? Because Iran has always been training uh, people from these countries and keep them there as sleeper cells for the time when the Mahdi, the Messiah, appear. And so there will be his soul. Well so COVID already. exposed the fact that these these pan uh, Gulf and perhaps even pan regional militants militant networks are still uh, happening. Training is still going on in Iran. Uh, people are going to Iran and they're learning how to fire guns and how to be effective urban guerrilla militants, etc. That's still happening. Yeah, it's still happening, unfortunately. And COVID-19 exposed it. So you can bet everything that the relationship between Saudi Arabia and uh, Iran and, of course, basically all the other uh, Gulf countries, with the exception of Qatar, basically, and Oman, will be strained at the moment with Iran. As for Iraq, you know, you wanted to mention Iraq uh, because, of course, Iraq is uh, an important country in the Middle East. And, and and since the American invasion has been increasingly in Iran's pocket, I mean, it's fallen within Iran's sphere of influence. Absolutely. But uh, Iraq used to uh, export anywhere between four uh, and seven billion dollars worth of oil every month. But because of the drop in demand and the drop in price in the month of April, I think uh, their exports were only uh, 1.4 billion. They need uh, four billion dollars uh, a month just to pay the state payroll. The payroll of the state is huge. The salaries are huge because they are covering civil service, uh, the military, the security services, uh, the inflated contracts. Basically, they pay for companies owned by politicians. Don't ask me about the corruption anyway there. It's a long story. Uh, but also for the PMUs, you know, the militias that are actually uh, close to Iran, which are part of the PMUs, uh, which were necessary to fight Daesh uh, or ISIS. Um, also, their pay is on the state, and so or largely on the state. 
So, so the state has a massive bill coming and it can't, just can't afford to pay because it can't sell enough oil. Yeah. The, you know, so, of course, they went to Iran. Iran said, basically, if you have, you can give us. So, in other words, basically, the Iranians themselves are in desperate need for $5 billion from the IMF or Europe or anyone. Um, otherwise, the Iranians wouldn't be able to pay salaries very soon. So what do the Iraqis do then? Uh, they did the unthinkable. The new Iraqi minister, Mustafa Kadhimi, sent his deputy and the finance minister, uh, Mr. Ali Allawi, to Saudi Arabia to ask for an urgent three billion U.S. dollars in a urgent loan. In other words, basically just click on the button and transfer three billion dollars from your central bank to mine because I'm desperate. I'm against the wall. But Saudi um, Arabia surely wouldn't do that. I mean, they wouldn't contribute to the funding of these militias, for example. And, you know, in, in general, they don't want to empower an Iranian-aligned Iraqi government. Well, that's what you would think. Uh, but, you know, for example, for the Saudis, they are thinking the long term here. Yes, Iraq is a hostile country, but it's a hostile country on their border. And they don't want an only small part of that basically will go to paying towards you know, the salaries of those militias. Uh, the rest will be paying for the Iraqi civil service, which holds the state and the security services which hold the peace. So it was extremely important for Saudi Arabia to make sure that Iraq is stable. And it is an opportunity for Saudi Arabia. If this basically will uh, peel Iraq off Iran uh, to some degree and basically make them less dependent on Iran, so why not? Even the Saudis were asked by the Iraqis that we need natural gas uh, for electricity generation. And even we might need uh, Saudi Arabia to link us into their electricity grid because Saudi Arabia is a net exporter of electricity. Uh, yeah. All of this shows that though COVID may uh, keep us under lockdown, it doesn't keep the geopolitics of the Middle East under lockdown. Things are always bubbling away there. <laughs> Never <laughs> Absolutely. Ends. Well, uh, we spent rather too much time, I think, answering that extremely interesting question. Thank you very much, Lucy. Um, obviously, the, the COVID situation is enormous, and there are all sorts of uh, threads we could have uh, explored there. But I'd like to move on now to the second question. Uh, with this question, we're going right back to the beginning of Conflicted. If you remember, at the start of season one, we were discussing the war on terror uh, and speaking a lot about Iraq. We've just talked about Iraq. We're going to continue discussing uh, Iraq from a geopolitical perspective. This listener, uh, this is Sam from Aylesbury in England. This listener uh, was among many who wanted to know more about the internal politics of Iraq before the American invasion, uh, specifically the role of religion in Saddam Hussein's regime. And this is Sam's question here. Hi, my name is Sam and I'm a security analyst in Aylesbury in England. My question is about Saddam Hussein, who has previously been discussed on the podcast in terms of secular Arab nationalism and the Iraq war. However, I was wondering what Thomas and Eamon's thoughts are on the faith campaign that Saddam initiated in Iraq throughout the 1990s and how this particular strand of Islamism that was promoted by the regime at that time factored into what we've seen unfold in Iraq since the regime was toppled in 2003. Extremely interesting question. Now, it's true often that when people, including Eamon and myself, talk about the Middle East and about the big ideological movements that have determined politics in the Middle East for the last 60 years, it is easy to fall into black and white narratives. It's easy to say Saddam is a secularist, the Muslim Brotherhood are Islamist, and between them there is nothing. The truth, as in all things, is much more complicated. And Saddam Hussein, though he was a crazy human being, he was nonetheless a human being. And human beings change over uh, their lives. And it is true that 
over the course of his long premiership of Iraq, Saddam Hussein's attitude towards religion, the utility of a religion in unifying a country, and possibly even his personal piety, these evolved. Uh, and throughout the 1980s, initially, while he was fighting a war with Iran and felt the threat from Iran was great in Iran, which had become a theocratic Islamist state, uh, was seen by Saddam as particularly threatening. And at that time, he personally did begin to shift his attitude towards the effectiveness of Islam in unifying the Iraqi people. By the 90s, when uh, because of American sanctions and because of the, the devastating war, both the Iran-Iraq war and the first Gulf War, the economy of Iraq was in the doldrums, Saddam Hussein launched what's called the Faith Campaign, which was an attempt on the part of the Iraqi government to harness Islam and Islamic symbols to buttress the previous secular Ba'ath ideology. And a new sort of Ba'ath Islamist fusion was trying to be created. To some extent, this meant being more open to the Muslim Brotherhood, which previously the Ba'ath Party had been utterly opposed to. Uh, it, this was a, an attempt to to bring together both the Sunni and the Shia elements within Iraq under a, a pan-Islamic umbrella. And although, in fact, the Shia by that point had already had a very strong political, you know, sectarian ideology of their own, more or less, so the faith campaign tended really to unify the Sunnis more. And a lot of people say that the bloodshed that broke out in Iraq after the American invasion, the sectarian bloodshed, uh, was to do with the faith campaign more than the American invasion, that Saddam had actually already caused the sectarianization of Iraq via the faith campaign. Eamon, what do you think about that? Okay, uh, there are several things that we need to, um, you know, focus on here. You know, I will start with the last point, basically, that you made, that the faith campaign led to the sectarian tensions in Iraq. I would say no, actually. It was the Islamic Revolution in Iran in 1979 that led uh, to the, you know, massive increase in sectarianism across the region and in Iraq, because, of course, basically, it led later to the uh, Iraq-Iran war, which pitted, uh, you know, uh, some people pitted Shia against Sunni, I would say no. It pitted Sunnis and Shia Arabs against Iranians and Shia Persians. I mean, it was a very strange way to look at it, but it is the truth. I mean, 60% of the Iraqi army during the Saddam Hussein era and the war against Iran were Shia themselves. Um, you know, and to this day, there are millions of Shia Arabs in Iraq, basically, who are opposed to Iran and see Iran basically as something negative, not positive. You know, before the American invasion of uh, Iraq, it was estimated that two out of five marriages in Iraq before the U.S. invasion were between Sunnis and Shias. You know, it was a mixed marriage. But you, it's normal to find a, you know, a Sunni husband and a Shia, you know, a wife and vice versa. Um, that dropped, you know, uh, to, to, to these days to only two percent. After twenty percent, it now is two percent only. So it shows basically that. Uh, it's not necessarily that the faith campaign, you know, was what made Iraq sectarian. Why? If you ask all those Iraqis who lived, you know, during the faith campaign, they will tell you basically the faith campaign was superficial. It wasn't about, uh, you know, basically a role for Islam in politics. It was the opposite. You know, there is no role for Islam in politics. It was about the role of Islam in society. Sure, but that but someone will say that increasing the role of Islam 
in society is paving the way for Islam to become the primary focus of a person's identity. Yeah, but that's, uh, you know, basically normal in any society. Just look at the Bible Belt in America. I mean, the idea... Look at the Bible Belt in America. I mean... Yeah. Go to them and tell them, excuse me, you you know, your religion have no way, no, 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 no part in politics. And they will tell you, well, okay, just... You know, <laughs> just watch and see. Well, I think uh, that's the point, though, because in the <laughs> 70s, effectively, the Ba'ath Party and Saddam Hussein did go to the Bible Belt, if you like, and tell them, by the way, from now on, you're not really going to be religious. We're going to make you not as religious as you used to be because religion is bad. But by the 90s, it's not true. Nightclubs were being closed. Sharia punishments were being reintroduced. And there were voices within the hardcore of the Ba'ath Party in Iraq who were, who were asking openly, including including uh, one of Saddam Hussein's sons, openly, what, are we turning Baghdad into Riyadh? Are we, is this what we're doing? Now, I, and I take your point that, that the Iranian revolution is, let's say, the instigator of this wave of political sectarianization, but it is the Sunni response to that challenge, not just in Iraq, but around the region, that helped to contribute to the sectarianization. Still, ev- everyone I spoke to, you know, who lived during that period, he was saying it's it's nowhere near as, you know, a deeply Sunni sectarian as, you know, basically some might uh, want to, uh, you know, show it. In fact, many of the demands for Sharia to be introduced and, you know, for, uh, you know, the closure of the nightclubs and the alcohol selling points and all of that were demanded mostly by, you know, basically by the uh, Shia Hausa in Najaf, uh, you know, many of the demands you know, in what we call um, daily practices of people, uh, including the, you know, the nightclubs and the alcohol consumption, were demanded equally, if not even more vociferously, by you know, the uh, Shia Hausa. Sure, but th- that that's not what we're disputing. I'm not as it's it, I'm not asking a Sunni versus Shia question here. I'm asking about an Islamism versus secularism question. After the first Gulf War, when there was a Shia uprising against Saddam, which was brutally crushed, Saddam needed to make amends, them. if you like. Yeah, yeah. they have <laughs> yeah, to appease them. They have to say, look, like, and if you want to live, you know, basically a life of piety, so be it. Like, and if you want to live as if you are living in Iran, then so be it. Nonetheless, uh, someone said like, you know, it was Islam, but with a Baathist flavor. Sure, you know, absolutely. Uh, that's that's uh, it was a it was basically Islam in as Saddam Hussein imagined it to be. <laughs> ex- ex- exactly. So uh, because don't forget Saddam's cabinet and government, but it, it included not just only you know Shia Muslims and uh, Sunni Muslims. It included also Christians, oh, including yes. yeah the foreign minister and the deputy minister Tarek Aziz. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I mean, I I think that the the faith campaign. In, invariably, the faith campaign contributed to a change within Iraqi society from a more ideologically convinced secularism towards uh, a, 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 a range of identities that embraced Islam. I, I think, however, people who ask this question about the faith campaign probably in, support the American invasion and are trying to find a scapegoat for the sectarian violence that broke out following that invasion. And they'd say, no, it wasn't the American invasion that did it. It was the faith campaign. And I don't think we need to be playing that sort of game. The no. American invasion was profoundly destabilizing, obviously. Uh, to some extent, uh, the things that preceded it, both the Iranian revolution and Iran's attempts to politicize Iraqi Shia and the faith campaign 
and the general Muslim Brotherhood's expansion throughout the region. You know, there were all sorts of movements going on at the time. Absolutely. There all are two contributed points, yeah. to the sectarianism after the invasion. Exactly. There are two points that we have to make clear, is that uh, as soon as the, as the American invasion took place, tens of thousands of uh, Iraqi Shia who were based in Iran and Syria and other places who were extremely sectarian, extremely anti-Iraq, anti-secularism, anti-American even, came uh, on the back of the American tank and, you know, basically brought with them, you know, the flames of sectarianism. So it really started from there. The Badr uh, brigade came with the Americans. The Dawa party and their uh, allies came, you know, military allies basically came with the Americans. So that's the first point that we need to do. The second point is, if you think that somehow a superficial campaign regarding people's morality, you know, which was not sectarian in its nature, it was pan-Islamic uh, in Iraq that was being implemented, led to sectarianism afterwards and for the radicalization of the Iraqi people, I would say, I'm sorry, this is completely non complete nonsense. Why? Because just look at Tunisia. Tunisia lived in the past 50 years before the uprising that got rid of Ben Ali, lived for 50 years under the dictatorship of two people, Al-Habib Bourguiba and Zain al-Abdin Ben Ali. Both of them, not only they were extremely secularist, who established extremely fanatically secular societies and secular education system, they were openly anti-religion. I mean, they were, you know, especially Habib Bourguiba, who, you know, you know, who insisted on, you know, taking off the hijab and, you know, on, uh, you know, making the education system so francophone and far away from Islam as possible. Um, so if you just Google Islam, Tunisia, secularism in the past, and you will see violent secularism in its you know, purest forms uh, being implemented in Tunisia. Even though Tunisians live under a secular society all the way until the fall of the regime, as soon as they had the chance, they became the largest jihadi contingent in Syria. How? The veneer of secularism hides beneath it something else. I think that's, that was definitely true in Iraq. You know, I, I, I was, yeah. in, in researching for this episode, I was uh, reading some things about inner Ba'ath Party uh, meetings where Saddam and his, uh, and his lieutenants, if you like, were discussing the extent to which Islam should be incorporated into the Ba'ath Party ideology in the 80s and 90s. And Saddam openly said to his uh, colleagues that basically the Iraqis are a very, very religious. He actually, I think he used the expression something like passionate, fiery, religious uh, people. They just are, and we, we probably should uh, bend the knee and, and, and accept it, because they've been trying to push against it for 20 years, and it just ultimately wasn't, wasn't really working. Well, thanks for that answer, Eamon. Obviously, we could talk forever about th these questions, but let's go on to question three. Uh, we're still with Iraq. Uh, we were just talking about the uh, Iraq before the American invasion. This question, uh, which is from Will, another member of our Facebook group, this question is about Iraq after the American invasion. And here's the question. Hey guys, my name is Will. I work in the humanitarian sector, and I just finished two years in Iraq. So I've thought quite a lot about what the country might have looked like had the United States not invaded. Um, and I'd be quite interested to hear your thoughts, particularly on how you think Saddam's Ba'athist regime would have fared in the Arab Spring. 
uh, and what that would have looked like exactly. Like maybe it ends up like Syria or looks a little bit more like Egypt or Tunisia. Um, so yeah, thanks very much. So this is a sort of uh, fantasy question. We're going to imagine what the world would have been like <laughs> if America hadn't invaded uh, Iraq in 2003. Now, in order for this fantasy to make sense, we have to assume the following. 9-11 still happened. America still did invade Afghanistan to uh, topple the Taliban. So that did happen. They just didn't invade Iraq in 2003. So many things followed upon the American invasion of Iraq. So we have no idea, would the Arab Spring have even ever broken out? Would the 2008 financial crisis even have happened if America hadn't spent $4 trillion prosecuting the war in Iraq? We can never know. So we can speak only very tentatively. In general, Ayman, if America hadn't invaded Iraq and Saddam Hussein was still in power in 2011, and if the Arab Spring had broken out, how do you think Saddam Hussein's Iraq would have fared in the Arab Spring? I think uh, we would be finding that Iraq would have been both the hunted and the hunter. The hunted? Uh, Who would be hunting? Well, Iran is always Iran hunting will be hunted. Iraq. I Iran basically will be looking at Iraq and thinking, oh, an opportunity. So, but who? But more interesting, because everyone knows that Iran wants Iraq. But who would who would Saddam Hussein have been hunting? Syria. Ah, Syria. Now, this is the thing that the listener must understand that the Iraq, you know, the Iraqi regime under Saddam Hussein was a Baathist regime. The Assad regime in Syria is also a Baathist regime. But like so many radical movements, the Baathists of Iraq hated no one more than the Baathists of Syria. And vice versa. So you think that if the Arab Spring had broken out in 2011 and Saddam Hussein's Ba'ath Party was still running Iraq, they would have had their sights set on on, Bush, on, the, on the Assad regime in Syria. Exactly. So what will happen is that the Iranians would want to instigate a uprising against Saddam Hussein, especially in the Shia regions. Um, and Saddam basically would want to instigate an uprising in, the, in Syria against the Assad regime in the Sunni regions. Uh, and that would have been an extremely interesting thing to see because then what would happen is that you have a, a Sunni minority regime in Iraq trying to undermine a Alawite Shia minority uh, government in uh, Syria. Then there will be the bargaining. Saddam could tell Iran, look, if you try to destabilize me, I'm going to destabilize Syria, your you know, favorite child here in the Middle East. Um, and there is no way you can help Syria because I'm in the middle. I'm in the middle. I'm not, you know, you see, if you see the Syria right now, Syria right now is what it is right now because Iraq is in the pocket of Iran. And so Iran was able to send in tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of men and equipment and other things basically to help uh, Yeah, the point Assad is because of the, Iraq, Iraq is now a bridge, bridging Iran exactly. and Syria. When Saddam was in power, Iraq was a wall that kept Iran at bay. And I think that's the most important thing, that if the Arab Spring had broken out in 2011 with Saddam still in power in Iraq, Iran would simply not have been able to capitalize on the Arab Spring to the extent that it has. Because exactly. Saddam Hussein, love him or hate him, did achieve one thing. He kept Iran back. He was the lion of the Arabs. He saved, he, you know, he, def he defended the frontier. <laughs> yeah, they used to call him the guardian of the Eastern Gate. The guardian of the Eastern Gate. It's so romantic. Oh, Saddam Hussein. Oh, such a romantic <laughs> warrior. <laughs> but, but if an uprising against Saddam Hussein happened in 2011, in the beginning of 2011, and it is 
uh, instigated by Iran, then two things would have happened. First one is the Saudis would end their you know, animosity towards Saddam and they will come to his aid immediately. So that's the first thing. And they have a direct border together. Uh, the second thing is that President McCain of America, yes, President McCain of America. Because you're assuming if the America hadn't invaded Iraq, there would have not been the political coalition that brought Obama to power. Exactly. Or the financial crisis, most likely. Uh, or at least the financial crisis would have happened later. So President McCain would be far more anti-Iranian than the Obama administration were, if, if, if Obama was ever anti-Iranian to begin with. Um, and he would have lent um, you know, Saddam help in one hand against uh, you know, Iran and also possibly against Syria. McCain would love to have destabilized Syria. He was one of the people who demanded after the assassination of Rafiq, former PM Rafiq al-Hariri for Syria to withdraw immediately from Lebanon. Uh, so he would have been you know, an, you know, a major factor in safeguarding But Saddam's, would Rafiq al-Hariri have been assassinated yeah. at all if America hadn't invaded Iraq? <laughs> That's a possibility even to begin with. This is why these questions are extremely difficult to answer because of the butterfly effect you know the you know the billions of variables that is true i think so the, the the question is primarily helpful in helping people to focus on the extent to which iran was able to maximize uh the opportunity that the that the arab spring afforded it uh and without with saddam out of the way iran was given a much 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 more open field to play in so that's question 3 thank you very much will excellent question we're moving straight on to question four. This is from Helen from Sydney, ah, all the way from Sydney, Australia. Here's Helen's question. Extremist thinking seems to be on the increase in many different parts of the world, in rich countries, poor countries, free, unfree, religious and secular. Are the underlying causes the same across regions? Are there common factors or is every situation unique? Thank you, Helen. This this is not so much a political or historical question. This is a bit a bit of a broader question, but I think it is on everyone's minds these days because certainly radical ideas, extremist thought is on the increase. I think we can see it everywhere. Even those ideas that we have sympathy with do seem to be expressed in more uh, radical and extreme ways. So, Eamon, what do you think? Is there something underlying this general increase in extremism across the spectrum, from Islamic extremism to socialist extremism to neoliberal extremism? You name it. Nationalist extremism. Nationalist extremism, racist extremism, na you know, white nationalist extremism on the rise. All I can say is that there is at least in my mind, there is one major common denominator between all of these. What's uh, that? The fear of the unknown. People are just afraid um, all over the world. You know, uh, the certainty is that uh, the new world order, which you articulated very well uh, in the last season, uh, Thomas, um, is becoming you know, or is being dismantled in front of their eyes. The certainties yeah, so if we, of... If we, you know, we, let's, let's return to this, the image that America's leadership of the world following the end of the Cold War, uh, you know, gave people. Even if you opposed American leadership for some reason, you, you nonetheless had a framework within to view the world. You knew that there was a hegemonic power. That hegemonic power stood for capitalism and liberalism, 
that hegemonic power was going to try to increase those values globally using primarily market-driven and politics-driven means, but also military means when necessary. In general, that was the world, and in general, the world was meant to go in that direction. It's not going in that direction anymore, at least it doesn't seem to be, and that is very destabilizing to people's sense of certainty. The future is unknown, and that creates vulnerability, that creates that creates the, the breeding ground for, what, reactionary extremist ideas? Oh, yes, and for a very good reason, because, uh, you know, on the socialist side, they are saying, look, capitalism has failed, let's try yet the, uh, you know, the idea that was never implemented successfully ever before, which is socialism, you know, and of course, basically, you know my views on this. Um, and then you have, you know, basically the other people who are saying, well, look, you know, look at countries like uh, Korea and Japan. They are uh, pure ethno-states and they are successful. Why can't we have that in the West? You know, you have voices like this basically rising in places like the UK, France, Germany, Spain, Italy. Basically, people saying like, you know, I mean, the migration have diluted our productivity and diluted our uh, sense of culture. And, uh, our, um, and our old friends, the Islamists, this is yet one more example of, hey, your big secular globalist world is actually the work of Satan. See what's happening. We need to rise up against the great Satan and, and bring back the caliphate. <laughs> exactly. We have to go back to religion and not just only to religion, but to a political religious ideology um, that was prevalent basically in uh, the past. Uh, and then you have people basically coalescing around strong men because people basically looking you know, for someone to lead them, someone to defend them, someone to uh, protect their values. Uh, so all you need to do basically is, you know, to become uh, a popular, even though controversial leader, you know, basically in places like Brazil or America or Europe, basically is become, you know, someone who is a Bible something, anti, you know, modernization uh, or ultra liberalization individual basically saying, look, I'm going to defend your family unit because the family unit is under attack from international agencies. Therefore, I'm going to defend your family unit. I'm going to defend your values. I'm going to defend your traditions. Uh, you know, it will always be like this, you know, and the nuclear family, uh, the family values. So, But then on the other side, within the heart of liberalism itself, it's, it's, it's you know, liberals see all around them these threats to their ideological hegemony, and, and some of those voices become what are what's being called hyper-liberals. Hyper-liberalism becomes a radical a radicalism of its own, where they're doubling down on liberalism, sometimes to the extent that it you know, doesn't even make sense to people, which of course is only contributing to the rise of discord and conflict. Exactly. Even in places like Africa, in places like Asia, in places like Central and uh, South America, when they see international organizations uh, from the UN, uh, under the umbrella of the UN or other organizations, basically keep enforcing on them, you know, that, oh, no, you know, family could be anything, you know, man can be woman, woman can be man, all of these things, basically, which is alien to them. Maybe, like, you know, basically, the West has accepted that, but not the rest of the world. And, you know, what's happening is that if one part of the world is moving too fast, even sometimes too fast for their own constituents, for their own citizens, for some of their own citizens, just look at Hungary, for example, as part of the EU, but, you know, I don't think any of these policies are very popular there to begin with, or these ideas are very popular. So 
the certainties that people had for centuries that this is what a family looked like, this is what a man looked like, this is what a woman looked like. And then suddenly someone, you know, basically who's ultra liberal, you know, basically among from, from a circle of elite who are in a world trotting, you know, telling them, oh, no, didn't you know, basically, this is just so past century. Now we are in 21st century. Things has changed. And people are replying back by saying, no, they haven't. And if you try to impose this on me, I'm gonna like fight back and fight back hard. So I think we can say that 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 you know extremisms are on the increase because what is on the increase globally is this uncertainty. I mean, economic fundamentals, the economic fundamentals of neoliberalism and globalization, have been destabilized by the by by various financial and economic crises. Uh, the you know yeah. industrial pollution globally exactly. has destabilized various environmental equilibriums, which of course is creating this great uh, anxiety about the future. And cultural and religious traditions have been destabilized by postmodern ideas. These things are all destabilizing. These things create tremendous sense of uncertainty towards the future. Uh, and in response, uh, a, a huge chunk of humanity will are likely to to reach out and grab radical solutions to these um, Exactly, to and that's why I say to people basically that, uh, you know, whatever social progress that you have achieved, you know, just hit the pause button right now in order to consolidate so you do not uh, destroy completely what you have already achieved. I think you understand and the listener will understand what I mean. Whatever social progress that has been achieved, hit the pause button right now before you undo everything that you have done. Well, Eamon, I don't know about you, but I mean, I feel a little bit, um, I feel pessimistic, I must say, overall, when I see the, the, the growing extremisms everywhere and the clash of uh, conflicts uh, and, uh, you know, ideological, political, I don't know uh, how we're going to get out of it. But uh, anyway, let's not go down that rabbit hole and move on to question five. Uh, thank you very much, Helen from Sydney, for your interesting uh, and thought-provoking question. This next question follows on somewhat from our discussions in Season 2, Episode 3 on Russia. It was sent to us by Rupak in our Facebook group. To what extent did the non-involvement of the West in the Balkans have to do with the fact that there was nothing at stake commercially there? In the Middle East, oil has always been the incentive, regardless of whether Israel is there or not. What are your thoughts? So... I think he's talking about the the war and uh, uh, and conflict that broke out following the collapse of Yugoslavia in the early 90s. This is, of course, the period when you uh, first ventured out from your homeland of Saudi Arabia to strike yeah. your uh, <laughs> strike your <laughs> your your fortune abroad, uh, uh, joining the um, the militias who were fighting on the side of the Bosnians against the Serbs, uh, who were trying to uh, wipe them out. First of all, let's break this down into some sub-questions. Is it true that the West didn't intervene in Yugoslavia? Oh, no, they did. Um, although it's not the similar intervention that you would have seen uh, in Kuwait uh, when they expelled uh, Saddam Hussein you know, in 1991. And there is a good reason for that. You know, where would the um, you know, uh, European forces coalesce? You know, first of all, you need a springboard. You need a country that allow you to mass the troops you know, on the border in order for you to come in. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the Balkan was a civil war. 
you know, almost basically between, you know, warring factions, you know, the Bosnians, the Croats and, uh, and the Serbs. Uh, so it's not like what happened between Saddam and Kuwait, where a sovereign country invaded a sovereign country and there was a need basically to expel. Uh, anyway, the, I mean, the, the Balkans aren't Kuwait. It's not, uh, Kuwait is a lovely, nice, flat piece of <laughs> desert. You can roll your tanks over no problem. The Balkans are incredibly mountainous. <laughs> exactly. I, I fought there. I know the mountainous uh, you know, nature of it. And armies would be bogged down there for years. Uh, it will be a Vietnam for any you know, basically power you know, who wants to intervene. So mass uh, military intervention was already in a way off the table because of yes. the topography and the politics of that particular area. Exactly. Um, but but you say nonetheless uh, the West did intervene. The UN was there. It was you know there was an international coalition that was there. There were air, air bombings. The yeah, yeah, air bombings by the French and the Americans against uh, heavy weapons by the Serbs. Um, so they prevented them from using missile launchers and uh, heavy artillery against Sarajevo. Uh, so you know, in in reality, there was an intervention. You know, and the UN peacekeeping force there was not exactly toothless, despite what happened in Srebrenica. And Srebrenica was an isolated the incident of uh, UN incompetence, although the UN was always incompetent. Um, but, you know, uh, the British forces, the Canadian forces, the Spanish forces were far better, you know, at, you know, basically trying to prevent bloodshed, uh, especially in the center of the country, in places like Vitez and Tuzla and, uh, you know, and uh, Zenitsa. So, however, I will come back to one issue here, which is there is nothing wrong with the global powers trying to ensure that the lifeblood you know of the world economy which is oil is not under severe threat so this is the point basically the implication of the original question is that intervening uh, militarily in conflicts for oil or over oil is somehow especially bad and you disagree with this you think it's it, it's absolutely good that the great powers of the world make sure that the flow of oil isn't cut off yeah, because if Saddam invaded Kuwait and suddenly Saddam was in charge of 20% of the oil reserves if, uh, and production, if he continued to the eastern province, and he could have done... The eastern province of Saudi Arabia, you mean? Yes, and also, also, and Qatar and Bahrain, all of these you know, would have fallen to him within days. Uh, if he did that, he will be in charge of almost 55% of the world's oil reserves and production. That would have been catastrophic for the world. He would have actually blackmailed the whole world. So, of course, the, you know, it's different from the Balkans. I mean, so, uh, you know, the world would have taken notice immediately. And, uh, and, and, of course, basically, if someone is trying to cut off your water, you know, you will fight tooth and nail, basically, to make sure that the water still flows. It's the same thing here. Um, so, one need to understand that, you know, intervening in order to safeguard, you know, major oil flow to the world economy is not inherently bad, if, especially if a bad person like Saddam, and Saddam was bad, I, you know, I was never a fan of him to begin with, he threatened my own uh, homeland uh, in Saudi Arabia, and also basically I lived under the barrage of his mis Scott missiles uh, in Hobart of 1991. So I would say basically that it was the right thing to do. In Bosnia, I said many times, it was extremely difficult to intervene except by air. Because, as you said, the topography, and I've fought there myself, is incredibly difficult for conventional armies. And where will they congregate? Where will they amass their troops? I mean, the U.S. amassed half a million troops on the border with Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia had the capacity, had the food and the water and, the will, and everything the necessary and will. the will. And the, and the money. <laughs> they paid exactly. for the damn thing. <laughs> $75 billion, yeah. I mean, they paid for the whole thing, $75 billion. So what, where, where would... 
the U.S. have a neighboring country of Bosnia to do that? Where? So, so let me just so let's summarize our points in this question so far. First of all, you're saying that okay, yes, to some extent, for sure, the Balkans are less geostrategically important than the oil-rich Middle East. Therefore, the oil-rich Middle East. Uh, uh, you know, trumps the Balkans when it comes to military intervention. On the other hand, you're saying that uh, it's not entirely true that the West didn't intervene in the Balkans. They did intervene. But there's a third dimension that I think people often forget. And it's that, you know, the Balkans for for Western Europe specifically have a very Im- important and resonant uh, sort of dimension to them, which is that the First World War broke out after an assassination in Sarajevo. So, I sub- I think if you if you imagine you're in you know, the corridors of power in Western Europe in 1991 1992 and you realize that that Bosnia Sarajevo is a festering wound again in some so in the heart of Europe you might you might think let's be cautious let's not jump into this war because the last time we did that it you know all hell broke out do you think that was actually in people's of course, minds? Of course. Like, I mean, the horrors of the First World War, which would led later, of course, to the Second World War and the rise of the Nazis, was still fresh in the minds of people. Um, it, it was the 1990s. Like, you know, how long ago? There were, you know, it was only 45 years ago. You know, many of the veterans of the, not only the Second World War, the First World War, many of the veterans were still alive. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in 1991, in the early, in late 80s and early 90s. So, they would have cautioned against any intervention in a way that is you know, going to pit the forces of France and UK and Germany uh, against you know, basically either the Serbs or the Croats or the Muslims. I mean, it's just a hornet's nest that he didn't also, want to... Also, if you, if, you, if you think the Cold War is over, but it's just over, you know, military demobilization is happening to some extent, which means that Western European military readiness isn't at its peak. But at the same time, okay, Russia has just collapsed, but it's only just collapsed. Do we want to antagonize Russia? All of these considerations must have been in people's minds. Absolutely. And therefore, I would say to people basically that, no, it wasn't oil at all that determined whether the Balkans should be, uh, there should be an interference in the Balkans. There was an interference, there was an intervention, there was a a degree of protection for some civilians. Um, You know, it wasn't a perfect one, but but of course, because of the history, the geopolitics, the topography, the geography, the lack of uh, a springboard for an invasion uh, led to just, you know, ruling out any intervention and that any intervention would have been bogged down costly and would have been deadly and counterproductive possibly. Well, thank you very much. That was uh, question five. Thank you, Rupak, for a really interesting question. We'll move on now to a question from Percy, another uh, member of our Facebook group, who would like us to expand more on financial terrorism, as he puts it. This is a topic... Uh, we touched on in Season 2, Episode 5, Wall Street. Um, his question is... Thomas and Eamon, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the Saudi-funded Wahhabi madrasas and the millions of dollars in financial support to extremist groups around the world. How do we count on Saudi Arabia as an ally in the war on terror when they are one of the greatest exporters of extremism? Now, I think Percy uh, means, by biggest exporters of extremism, uh, Saudi Arabia. And I also know that Eamon gets very animated about this question <laughs> because <laughs> he's, he hears it all the time and he thinks that it is, from top to bottom, wrong-headed. Am I right about that, Eamon? Oh, yeah. 
I mean, I, I always forgive people for having the impression that, you know, Saudi Arabia is the source of all evil in the world. I mean, basically, if you walk like a duck, if you <laughs> quack like a duck, so you must be a, a duck. Um, but the reality is that the greatest source of extremism in the world, you know, today is coming from really two directions. The first one is the Diobandi uh, school of thought, which is centered in uh, the sub-Indian continent and now is mostly in Pakistan. Um, so Diobandism is a stream within uh, uh, Islamic Puritanism, if you like, Islamic revivalist fundamentalism, Diobandism. It's often lumped together with Wahhabism, but uh, in your view and in the view of scholars, there are uh, important distinctions between these two. Oh, yeah, two. they are two separate things. They are completely two separate things. You have to understand, basically, that the second source of extremism is Egypt. So when you have Pakistan and Egypt, or I would say the sub-Indian continent, to be more precise, and Egypt, this is where the two sources of extremism really, you know, uh, uh, you know basically have festered, because the Egyptian uh, extremism, which know, is happened, really the Muslim, Muslim Brotherhood. Brotherhood. Yeah, they infected both Diobandism and the Wahhabism of Saudi Arabia. Uh, when Abu Lal al Maududi, who is the Sayyid Qutb, you know, let's say basically of uh, the sub Indian continent, uh, invented the idea of uh, political Islam in post caliphate um, there in the sub Indian continent and actually introduced the Diobandis, who already the Diobandi school, which basically looks after tens of thousands of madrasas all over the world. By the way, the word madrasa is not even an Arabic word. It is a bastardization of the Arabic word madrasa, which means a school, which is a secular school mostly in Saudi Arabia. The madrasa, the word madrasa, actually is a uh, Urdu word, you know, uh, basically used by the Diobandi school. The Dioband started in 1866 as a, uh, you know, you know, basically as a, um, a counter to the British, you know, hegemony in India. So from the beginning, it was uh, preaching the idea of jihad and the resistance against. So the let British me let me just stop you and and help the listeners. I'm going to contextualize this. So in uh, the mid 19th century, a revolt broke out uh, called the Sepoy Mutiny in in British controlled India. Uh, which resulted in Britain formally annexing India and incorporating it into the empire, whereas before that it had been a much looser arrangement, a patchwork arrangement between the East India Company and various different mogul and non-mogul princes within India. But after the, the mutiny, uh, London said, okay, that's it. We're really in control. India is part of our empire now. And in northern India, in Deoband, this place Deoband, a school was created in order to inculcate an ideology of resistance to British imperialism. Uh, this movement expanded enormously and now encompasses tens of thousands of madrasas around the world. This is what you're alleging, Eamon. Is this, this is what you're saying? Exactly, because if you look at, you know, if you look at the Taliban, Diobandi, if you look at all the Pakistani-born uh, uh, terror groups and Indian-born terror groups, all of them, and even in Bangladesh, all of them are Diobandi. And if we go to the other side of the world, Al-Qaeda or Osama bin Laden, Osama bin Laden wasn't a Wahhabi, Osama bin Laden was a Muslim Brotherhood who was indoctrinated into jihad by the Muslim Brotherhood, Abdullah Azzam, uh, you know, uh, in Afghanistan, 
who was a Palestinian Jordanian, a follower of the Muslim Brotherhood ideas. But what about then, Saudi money? I mean, you, you're, we're always being told that Saudi money funds the madrasas. So are these tens of thousands of Deobandi madrasas being funded by, by Saudi Arabia? No. And if anyone finds any evidence, please bring it to me. If you have documented evidence that we can submit to court, I will make sure, basically, that you will have lots of money in your pocket because, you know, uh, thousands of lawyers have been looking for that evidence that the Saudis directly funded the Diobandi and Taliban madrasas. But and Saudi now, does, does fund madrasas, you know, let's say Wahhabi madrasas. Yeah, first of all, basically, you have to understand that there are three kinds of Wahhabism. You know, you have the quietest, obedient, Salafist Wahhabism, which is basically, you know, uh, supporting the state. Uh, then you have the political activist Wahhabism, which is a marriage between the Muslim Brotherhood and uh, Salafism. And then the more extreme form of that, which is the jihadi Wahhabism or jihadi Salafism, which is, you know, what Al-Qaeda, ISIS and many other Egyptian groups like Al-Jama'a al-Islamiya and Egyptian Islamic Jihad uh, adopted. So we. So have the Saudi to be state supports only the first of those three forms of Wahhabism. Exactly. And it has founded schools around the world that, to some extent, teaches that form of Wahhabism as a way of of spreading Saudi Arabians Saudi Arabia's cultural and political power. I guess. But it. But you're saying these schools don't re, don't produce jihadists. <laughs> they produce the opposite. They produce you know basically people who are very loyal to the state, sometimes even loyal to repression. Just ask the Algerians, you know, ask the Libyans from before and ask the Egyptians. They love the Saudi Salafism. Because why? Even Abdel Fattah al-Sisi in Egypt, he praised that brand of Salafism because they even justified his massacre against the Muslim Brotherhood you know, in Rabi'ah, you know, the famous massacre of Rabi'ah uh, Square in Cairo in 2013. This is where Muslim Brotherhood supporters were massacred by the Egyptian military. So it was the Salafists you know, the Wahhabists, you know, who are following the strict Saudi pro-state line, who justified that for him, and they were graduates of these schools. The problem is not these schools, you know, and there are very few and far in between. I mean, basically, there are tens of thousands of madrasas around the world for the Sunni Islam, and the vast majority are the Yuband. And, you know, this is where we have to focus. I mean, I always say to people that the smartest thing that, you know, the Diobandi people did is to shift the blame on the Saudis because they were easy target and to hide and camouflage, you know, their influence. If but you who, look at who funds the Diobandi madrasas, if I may ask? Aha, uh -huh. you have to understand that the Diobandi madrasas are funded by general donations and zakat money being paid to them by uh, people in Pakistan, in India, Bangladesh, Afghanistan, South Africa, all over Europe, all over America, all and over Deobandism, Canada. And Deobandism and its madrasas turn people into jihadists? Is that what you're saying? They turn... The, their people into close-minded uh, extremists, you know, rather than basically, uh, I, I'm not going to say they are violent extremists, I will call them non-violent fundamentalist extremists. But if you look at the Taliban, if you look at basically the people who, you know, launched attacks, you know, basically in places like the UK or in uh, Pakistan itself, in Canada, uh, and other places of people of Pakistani origin or Indian origin, you will find basically that there are two or three things happening there you know and none of them are wahhabists you know basically the first influence is Deoband, then the muslim brotherhood then hezbo tahrir so how does the muslim brotherhood influence get uh, inculcated so I, I understand there are tens of thousands of deobandi madrasas where people are taught deobandist extremism 
But where is the Muslim Brotherhood influence coming from? Abu al-A'la al-Mawdudi. No, I, oh, you mean within the same madrasas, they're within also... The same, they, they ha, yeah, they have it. And also because Hezbo tahrir ideas and the Muslim Brotherhood ideas added to the Deobandi, if you add all of these mixed together, then you have something dangerous. The same thing that happened to Wahhabism. Again, we can't be relying on these strict black and white. The situation is always more nuanced. You know, as you said, there are three kinds of Wahhabism. There are various forms of Muslim Brotherhoodism. Deobandism itself began as one thing, turned into something else. As everything is always in flux. And there is, you know, countless mutations. You know, there are countless mutations. You know, and if you look at, for example, the people who committed the acts of terrorism on the London Bridge twice. You mean last before, year? Basically. Yeah, yeah. They all come from that same background. First, they start their lives as Diobandi, influenced by the Muslim Brotherhood. They embrace Hezbo Tahrir, and then you know, and the you know Hezbo Tahrir, as you know, for the people basically is a is a non-violent extremist group that call for the Caliphate to return. Um, and then suddenly ISIS comes along. So they are already ready. The toxic mix of Diobandism, you know, Hezbo Tahrir and Muslim Brotherhood, all there. And for some other people, like the Arabs, it will be the other way. It will be a toxic mix of Wahhabism, Muslim Brotherhood, and Hezbo Tahrir. So, you know, Wahhabism or Diobandism, they are the foundation, you know, building foundation for that. And, you know, but nonetheless, you know, you can't blame an entire religious ideology you know, basically, for being the only sole factor. There are so many factors, you know, that have to be added before you have a violent extremist. And I think I think the Saudi state has, to some extent at least, uh, recognized this fact that though Wahhabism, or what's called Wahhabism, of course, they don't call it Wahhabism, but uh, though Wahhabism uh, isn't necessarily the primary factor motivating Islamic ex- violent extremism, it is there. And so since 2010 or thereabouts, the Saudi state has actually withdrawn a lot of its support of, of the madrasas that it did pay for abroad. It, it has shifted its policy away from even inculcating quietist Wahhabism. Yeah, and also don't forget, basically, even the quietist Wahhabism, why they were spreading it in order to counter the uh, Iranian uh, proselytization uh, process among uh, Sunni communities all over North Africa and the Middle East and uh, East Africa. And so the idea is to act as a counterweight. And that was encouraged by the U.S., you know, uh, you know, intelligence services. It's true. But, uh, but then I must say, you know, the Saudi, the Saudi Madrasa movement, if you like, started before the Iranian revolution and was initially begun to counteract Marxist proselytizing uh, throughout the, the Muslim world. So it's it started under King Faisal in the 1960s uh, in the U- United States. The CIA, if you like, realized that the best way to counteract growing Marxism throughout the Muslim world was to increase Muslims' Islamic identity, Isla- Muslims' Islamic identity and awareness. So, it you know, these, these questions, they always, you know, you just peel back the layer of the onion and you go back further and further <laughs> exactly. in, in time. And, and, and we started the answer by going back all the way to the Victorian period and towards exactly. the first uh, mass Islamic movement against Western colonialism. That movement, in its own context, let's say, was perfectly just, but it also created an ideological matrix where instead of uh, specifically Indian Muslims combating the British Empire— you can see that it's not a huge step from that to all Muslims combating a kind of amorphous Western other enemy that we must fight. Exactly. And it, exactly. it, it, it infects the way that political Islam thinks. 
Although there is something ironic, Deoband started as an anti-British, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt started as anti-British. Uh, the Salafists, however, the Wahhabis in Saudi Arabia, cooperated with the British at some point and they were always protected by them. And uh, for the aid that the Salafists, uh, basically, or the Wahhabis were giving the British in the Arabian Peninsula, it's interesting. Well, and <laughs> the guns that the British the were guns, giving Abdulaziz. Yeah. Abdulaziz. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, oh, like, like always uh, in uh, our conversations here on Conflicted, uh, we could talk forever uh, because these, these, these subjects are endless. I think that if we kept talking, we would probably go back to the Sumerian Empire's influence oh, on the on the present day, <laughs> uh, which uh, maybe who knows maybe by season fifty eight we'll get to the Sumerian Empire and its ideological reverberations down to the present. But our final question for today, a little bit lighter, thank God, after all of this heavy stuff, was sent in to us in our audience survey by Marius. Hello, Eamon and Thomas. Uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to pose a question on the show. I'd like to ask Eamon if he's watched Homeland and what is his uh, opinion on the show and its depiction of uh, spying and espionage in the Middle East. Thank you very much again and a huge fan of the show. Cheers. You see, um, Homeland, I, can't, I have to bring another TV uh, show, which is The Looming Tower. Uh, so Homeland is a long-running thriller series. The Looming Tower was a... Uh, a more like a miniseries. It was an adaptation of an excellent history of uh, of Al Qaeda uh, and its uh, run and the run up to to nine eleven. Yeah. So basically, the Looming Tower is based on true events and you know and biographical uh, accounts of um, you know the people who were involved in the war against terrorism uh, uh, leading up to nine eleven and just a little bit beyond. Uh, Homeland is just completely fictional. And does it does it strike you as completely fictional when you watch yes. it? Is it just a fantasy? Complete fantasy. Uh, this is why I would say basically that you know the looming tower is terrorism as it is. Uh, Homeland is terrorism as Hollywood imagined it. And and where what are the distinctions there? How how does Homeland portray terrorism in in, in a way that it's not that it's not accurate? E- extremely exaggerated, cartoonish, two dimensional. You know, with that, you know, the idea basically that you will, you know, far fetched, you know, in many ways, um, and you know, alliances not right, you know, ideological overleanings not right. Um, nothing about it strikes you as accurate, but of course, basically, like, you know, I mean, it's entertaining for those who were not in the movement, but for someone like me, basically, I just watch it and I think. Guys, who's writing? You know, who, who, you know, just contact me. Like, you know, basically, I will write something better for you. Like, you know, I mean, that's more accurate. I mean, so. Well, Eamon, I'm afraid Homeland <laughs> is extremely popular and made those writers a lot of money. So they don't, I'm not sure accuracy is at the top of their list of priorities. It, yeah, it, it is terrorism as Hollywood, you know, or that world, basically, as Hollywood want to imagine it, uh, that it is far more emotional. You know, there are, you know, basically just so many distractions here and there and the 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 story you know doesn't follow basically a logical you know political you know or geopolitical and religious line as i would have expected but the looming tower however is far more entertaining because wow i mean i have lived these events and so it's accurate in the portrayal it's accurate in showing 
you know, basically the process, the investigation, you know, yeah. I, you know, but I what about the way? What yeah. about the way that Homeland portrays in the intelligence services? Because the Homeland main, the main characters of Homeland are actually CIA agents. I think I haven't actually watched it because it looks like a, a pile of poo to me. But it. Uh, but I think that the main characters are intelligence agents, and you know, like we've talked about James Bond in the past, and how that's a fantasy of spycraft. Uh, and it, what about the way that Homeland portrays spycraft? Um, it was abysmal uh, because, <laughs> again, like that's not how uh, agencies work in real life. I mean, basically, the infighting inside all the time. I mean, but yeah, it, it, there is uh, inter-agency infighting, but within the agency itself, there will be always basically back and forth. But it's, decisions are not taken by one or two and, you know, people fighting each other all the time. There are committees, there are oversight, uh, there is uh, uh, there is lots of bureaucracy involved. And you're talking about, like, you know, and by the way, like, you know, there isn't a single handler for every spy. There are two or three. You know, basically, and uh, especially like, you know, basically in a male-female situation, and basically there are always another male or other female basically present, you know, for safety and security. What if like, you know, basically, you know, the uh, source suddenly turn on you? You need to have two or three handlers basically there to make sure that none of your people basically get assassinated. Whereas in Homeland, you see that you mean the main character uh, who's sleeping played by around Claire, basically with that. <laughs> oh, does she have, she has love affairs with her, yeah, with her exactly. handler? Yeah, yeah, oh, oh. Not with the handler, with the Source, with, sorry, with, uh, yeah, with the spy. Yeah, with the assets. So here is one thing. And also the second thing is that if you really want to see how, you know, apart from Looming Tower, there is a good movie, which is Zero Dark Thirty. Um, Ugh, which, I hate, I hated that movie. I mean, but I have it was to say, accurate. I hated that movie. I know, because it was accurate. I mean, it wasn't that accurate. I can't believe it was accurate. It was accurate. The, the, how, how they have finally found Bin Laden, basically, through, you know, uh, the lack of landline, through the doctor, you know, the immunization. It took years and years of following here, following there, dead ends here. And then the suicide bombing, because I, you know, basically knew about the suicide bombing, you know, basically hours after it happened, you know, when, when of course, basically the Jordanian spy for the CIA turned to be a suicide bomber, you know, he turned against them, he come to meet them, and then he blow up, you know, basically many people. By the way, the character Maya, I was told by uh, a former CIA agent, basically. This is the main the, character of Zero Dark Thirty, played by Jessica Chastain. Yeah. Yes, the character Maya is, in fact, you know, basically a dramatization of five individuals yeah, there were five right. there and it's, it's what's 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 quite remarkable is that hollywood took five spies and decided that if they bring them all together they re result in an extremely beautiful young woman yeah as you, <laughs> you need an entertainment for that but i have met many former uh cia agents basically who are of the female side and they were attractive i mean basically i mean you know you know there is um you know that quality because why they usually come from Mormon families, they come basically from, oh, wow. you know, the suburbs and, you know, from, you know, they come from Utah and Colorado and these places. And so, wow, straight yeah. from church and the volleyball court to Afghanistan and CIA uh, black, black uh, safe houses. <laughs> yeah, because they don't drink. You know, one of the things basically, <laughs> that's why the CIA love Mormons. I mean, basically, like, you know, it's just because they don't drink. And they All keep right. Secrets. Well, with that entirely <laughs> unexpected uh, <laughs> final flourish to this very special episode of Conflicted, um, that's it. We certainly hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, as always, uh, dear listeners, we would like to hear your thoughts. Uh, we want your feedback. Please follow us on Twitter. Join our Facebook discussion group. As you can see, if you join the group and you interact, you might just get a call out on the air. Leave us a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. 
Of course, you can find all the links in our show notes below. Thanks for tuning in, uh, and I promise you, we will be back soon. Uh, Goodbye, everyone. Say goodbye, Eamon. Goodbye. Conflicted is a Message Heard production. This episode was produced by Emily Wally and Sandra Ferrari, edited by Emily Wally. Our theme music is by Matt Huxley.